0: There's a particularly difficult but important subject that comes uh, out of the parts of the Torah that we're reading now, which is the process of, of Exodus, moving through the experience of a splitting of the sea into the desert. And that is the issue of spiritual paradox. Very difficult subject, but let's try to <coughs> let's t- let's try to think through this. I mean the the root of the subject is in the deepest areas of Torah thinking, but of course it has practical of course like all Torah subjects it has practical output. What is the practical output of understanding the world of paradox? I suppose I suppose a simple example might be the ability to laugh in a tragic world. You have to live through a world that is uh, full of disaster and looming disaster and all sorts of problems. And yet, there's an obligation to be right? That's a paradox. It's a paradox. It can only be done with a deeper insight. It, only, it can only be done by someone who knows that is, this is not all there is. That this builds something else, that this derives from something else. There has to be a knowledge of two things. One is the experience, and it has to be felt richly, and its pain has to be experienced. And there also has to be a knowledge that there's something else from another place. You know, that's the basic, a fundamental <coughs> issue of of M1R. Last week we spoke about bitocherin, the the mitzvah of of trust. That means knowing, having this knowledge, and living according to it. Let's try to let's try to define this evening the. The root of the subject. That's something that takes uh, effort. is not a simple, not a simple um, subject. Let's try and perhaps approach it like this. And th- the question is: Do you have, do you have some, do you have energy to think into something a bit deeper? Not convinced, huh? <laughs> well, let, let's see if we can make the effort. You know, the, the root of this is the name of Hashem, the divine name. Right? That's, the, that's where the whole subject... Let's try to elevate ourselves this evening, if we're able, to study what it means, one aspect of what we grasp, or we, we know, of what we call the name of Hashem. You know, we Jews, we call Hashem the name. Hashem means the name. When we choose a, an appellation, or a, a euphemism, or a term, whatever word you want to say, for Hashem's name, which we cannot pronounce... We choose to say the name. In other words, of essence to us is the fact that it's a name. And we've uh, often shared the idea together that the idea of a name is that which is given for the external. My name is not for me. My name is for you. <coughs> my grasp of myself has nothing to do with my name. If you walk around relating to yourself internally by calling yourself by your name, you you you're in trouble psychologically. Right? You, you, you probably <laughs> need therapy because you... You should not grasp yourself by your name. Your name is a handle that those outside of you use to attach to you. I need your name. You don't need your name. And the Nebuchadnezzar explains very, very clearly that the name of Hashem, the, the Divine Name, is that which we relate to of Him. What He is behind that name is off-limits to us. In fact, in the deeper sources <coughs> it indicated that we're not even allowed to think about what He is. In fact, we don't even have a word denoting what He is. The only word that the deeper sources use is a word that indicates that he has no limitation or borders or edges. But what he does have, he's not allowed to say. Again, you have to understand, when we talk about, to put it in in plain English, when we talk about God, what we mean is what we call the name. We're talking about the name of the one whose name that is. The one whose name it is, we cannot grasp. cannot grasp. But, what we can deal with, or at least begin to study and begin to relate to, begin to appreciate, is his name. The name is the interface between what he is right, and what... And that name is the source of, of paradox. The root of the idea is that it's the place where all things are all things, and yet they're all one. <coughs> things that come down into the world from there are the individual, particulate, differentiated entities in the world, and yet Milvada, there's nothing besides Hashem. Right? This is the central Kabbalistic paradox if you like, that there is a oneness of all existence, and yet we're not denying or f- failing to experience the multiplicity of all existence. Let's try, and, let's try and see the root of this. And of course the focus of, of real meditation, and the focus of tefillah, of, of davening, of prayer, you know, there are many Jewish areas where we, where we, where we ponder this, where we, where we relate to this. There's not a popular message, by the way. There's not a popular message in a modern scientific empirical world where the only things they prepared to relate to are the things that you can distinguish and differentiate in the lab and measure. This is not the spiritual world lives lives beyond that. It's not it's not in contradiction to that world. But it is the root of that world, right? If your mind is set in Western technological empirical science only, then there's no place for this. Right? There are proofs for this, but they live in a different part of the mind. The proofs are not in the lab. They are not done by measuring things. These, these proof is not appropriate, but the knowledge of these things lives in a specific part of the root of the mind. Very hard thing to talk about. But I'd like to try to work through some of the, the implications and applications of this idea and see if we can derive a more Jewish sense of, of that which is higher... First of all, the Torah says that when we began the process of moving out of Egypt, of Mitzrayim, so when, when Hashem spoke to Moshe, when God spoke to Moses, He said to him that the name that I gave your predecessors, your, the, yeah, the forefathers of the Jewish people, was not this name that I'm revealing to you now. Ushmi right? Hashem I lahim. Yeah, the name that I'm making known to you. Yudkei Vavkei, the four-letter name of Hashem that we never pronounce, right? We never say that name. <coughs> that name I'm making known to you and your generation, that name was not, I was not, I never revealed that name to your ancestors. What does that mean? It means that the previous generations of Jewish history, Abram, Yisrael, Yaakov, all the generations that lived until the Exodus from Yisraim, right? The whole world, in fact, all, all of the generations that, that lived right, until... <coughs> All of the generations that lived until the this revelation lived in awareness of a higher reality, but the contact they had with it was not like it was subsequently. A <coughs> fundamental idea. The perhaps the way to the way to approach this is that the for, the former generations. We're talking about people like Abraham himself, Abraham I Avinu. Mean, he made contact with that, and he had, he came face to face with it. I mean, Hashem spoke to him, but the nature of his prophecy was with names other than this name. The sources that talk about it indicate that the other names are names of divine connection with the world. The name Elohim, for example. You know that all of Torah, all of Judaism stands on understanding of the divine names. No avoiding that, right? Might sound abstract and theoretical, but all of Torah stands on on understanding of that. Because these names are what bring reality into, into existence. The name Elohim, for example, that name, means the technical definition of it is it means the one who is master of all powers and energies in the world. He is behind them. It's well known that the gematria, the numerical equivalent of the word which is that divine name is which means nature. The numerical equivalent, that means there is some commonality, or some point of contact between that name and the concept of, of the natural. Maybe all these people can take one step forward. Can you do that? Move your chair one step forward so they can fit in at the back. Can you do that? You, in front, you have to do that Move your chair There you go, there you go Okay Okay Okay, let's try again Okay We're about to demonstrate the higher level of miracle here, right? How you fit an impossible number of people in a (laughs) finite amount of space That's the higher higher level So let's try again You see, Jews are beyond time. <laughs> we're beyond space and we're beyond... Time. That's what we're about to prove. Alright, let's try again. That name means the emanation of the transcendent into the natural. It's the power behind the natural world. There's another name, which is what we call Admus Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud, Addoi, that name... Which we say when what we mean is the, when we mean which we never say. We say uh, we say that name. That name means master of all the powers. Right? Adon in Hebrew means a master. That is the name that is the source, if you like, and gives rise to the name Alokim. Right? There's a whole hierarchy of mechanisms that have been yeah, that Hashem Himself has. Yes, that He is, if you like, which brings our reality into expression. But there's a name beyond all of those. And the name that's above and beyond those is a name that we never say. You know, let's just demonstrate before we get more deeply into the subject. The halachic angle here is that we don't say the name. Although the name we mean is Kevav Vavkei, the real name, we never say that name. What we do is we say the name Alef Nun Yud. Many people misunderstand. They think that the reason we don't say the divine name is that it's too holy. So we substitute another name that It's much deeper than that, you have to understand. The reason we can't say that name is not simply because it's too holy. It's a name that does not live in the world. The world is a finite place. That is a name that is beyond the world. And therefore, to say it in the world would be a distortion of what it is. The finite mouth, the physical mouth of a human being, pronouncing that name, would not be saying what that name is. Because, again, if you said it... Are we getting somewhere? If you said a word in the world that is one specific word uttered, you would be saying a specific thing. That is the root of all things where there aren't separate things. So what do we do? We say the word that means that. The word, that, yeah, that word, that name, that means the junction, the point of contact between the name that can't be spoken in the world and it's being brought into the world. We're not saying another name instead. We're saying exactly the concept that we mean. Right? The, the consciousness is supposed to be... I mean, it's a tremendous exercise. You have to say when a Jew makes a blessing... What is the work involved? So you think the work is to say, Baruch, Atah Hashem, Avokai, Blessed are you. To, what do you mean? What do you mean? What is the work of the mind at that moment? It's a very it's intense exercise. The intention is you should, be, you should mean this. You say, Baruch, Atah, which means, Hashem, you are the source of blessing. It doesn't mean you're giving Him a blessing. It means you, Hashem, are the source of, of this blessing that is this glass of water, this apple, this loaf of bread, whatever it is. And when you say His name, what you mean is this. That you, Hashem, are Hashem Yudke Vavke, which I perceive in my mind, I focus on. In fact, you should even see it. But what I pronounce is the name that means that name being brought into the world. That's the concentration. Again, when you say the name Aleph Dalad Nun Yud, you pronounce that in a blessing, the meaning of that name is Master of all the, of all the powers. Right? And you should say it and mean it. But what you should mean that you mean is the other name. That means, if you like, the exercise in consciousness is to see and hold, Yudke Vavke, while the mouth pronounces it in the world as the word that can be pronounced in the world. It's a tremendous exercise of concentration. It's for this reason, incidentally, that many suggest that one should use a Sidur that has the name written correctly. You know, many Sidurim print, instead of writing the name, for fear that it may be one day damaged or discarded, right when the book is worn out, so instead of printing the name, they only write a dalid with a dash, or a Hay with a dash, or two U's, <coughs> some meaningless abbreviation to denote the name. Right? That's problematic. Because if you're looking at that, you're, seeing, you're not seeing what you should... The halacha is that when you're davening, the din is that when you're davening, when you pray, your eyes should either be closed or look in a siddur. You're not to look at anything else. Right? You do not look around while you're davening. You either have eyes closed Or you look in the situation. If your eyes are closed, what should you see behind closed eyelids? What are you allowed to see? Complicated question. What are you allowed to see? Either nothing, which is very good, but very hard, very difficult. To see nothing, especially when you try. Especially if you try to see nothing at all. Problematic. Very problematic. Nothing spiritual pops into your head. The pictures that pop in are... Any picture is problematic. And therefore, it's a difficult exercise, although it's it's allowed and it's good. The second option is called Kavanas, which I'm not going to go into now, a special Kabbalistic technique, not relevant to us anymore, basically. And the third one is to see the divine name, to see Yud, Ke, Ke, that you're allowed to see. Even though it's a specific, finite-seeming form of four specific letters, and what you mean is that there is no, that Hashem is all one, nevertheless you can see that. Right? That's been given as a name. That you can see. So you either see it with your mind's eye, or you see it in the words in a sidur, right? Usually it's written in a Sidhu without its vowels, in the Sfaradi tradition, the word is written together with the word that you say. The Sfaradi tradition has what's called a shiruf. That means you have yud kevavke interspersed with, interposed between the letters of what you do say. So you have yud and an aleph, a hay and a dalit. The two words are woven in so that you see what you should be concentrating on and say what you should be saying. Or sometimes in the last hay of yud kevavke, the second word is written, which has a very deep meaning. It's of course that last hay of the yud kevavke that brings down all that it brings down. But, without going into the technicalities, this is the exercise. What we're saying is this, that the names that exist in the world can be said in the world. But the name that is beyond the world, you are intended, the meditation is on that name, because the mind transcends the world. Your consciousness can deal with that name. Your consciousness can focus on that name. That's what you're here for. But not your mouth. Your mouth is a physical thing. Your mouth can only say one thing at a time. Your mind can hold reality. But your physical body can only express pieces, bits and pieces, finite bits and pieces, which are always false, because they're not the whole thing. So what you what the intention is to think, to concentrate on the reality, which is all one. The Ramchal says there's a marvelous exercise that demonstrates this, and that's your own grasp of yourself. Your grasp of your external self is particulate; different parts of your body are separate. But your grasp of your consciousness is all one. You don't have a you do not grasp yourself as differentiated in your mind. When you use memory, or intellect, or imagination, or creativity, you don't feel like you're moving from one room to another. And if you do, again, you're you, you <laughs> psychologically handicapped. Um, you, you don't, that's not the way you grasp yourself. The way you grasp yourself is, above all descriptions and names, as the totality of what you are, no matter what exercise you're doing, your awareness of self is always total. He says that's the example we've been given in our experience of how the world can be a finite, differentiated world and yet, fr- and yet at root be all one. We actually have an experience of that which is our... Con- Again, in the West we're not trained to think that way. Western thinking is a training in accurate differentiation and limitation. Now, that's, that's our training in the Western scientific mode. It's a very, very problematic mode if one is limited there because it makes it very difficult to move into the root of that mode which does not contradict it but far transcends it. And, of course, it's, it's, it's obvious to anyone who thinks that the names that we use in the world, for example, the name Adnus, Adwe, yeah, or Elohim, those names are not only divine, they're also secular. Those are words that have a divine meaning, and they also have a secular meaning. Elohim means judges, for example. <coughs> and not only that, they are plural words. With the Torah weeks, they ask, when we talk about Hashem, although He's one, the word, amazingly, is a plural word. Elohim means judges, plural. Adwe, yeah, that word means masters, plural. Why on earth would we use a divine name when the deepest axiom of all Judaism is that Hashem is one? Why would we use words that express Him that are plural? The reason is that His name of essence is not plural. It's beyond all expression, beyond all sense of... But the names that come into the world have a facet that is secularized and a facet that is plural, because that's what the world is. And those are the names that bring that reality into existence. But the name that the mind holds, the name of oneness, of complete oneness, is beyond expression in the world. And therefore, we think it, but we do not say it. There is one possible place where the name is said. And that is in the Besamekdash, in the temple, by the Kohen Godel, the high priest on Yom Kippur. How come come he can say, when everyone, when they hear that name, there is a tremendous Because on that day, in that place, that individual is a complete transcendence of time and place. He is out of this world. The, high, the Kohen Godel is the one who transcends the world. The word Kohen in Hebrew, Maral points out, adds up to 75. 75 is the gematria numerical way of saying between 7 and 8. You don't have half numbers in gematria. 75, is, 7 is the natural world and 8 is the transcendent world. 7 is always the number of the world, 7 colors in the spectrum. The natural world always divided into 7. The 6 facets of a cube and the 7th that hold them into 1 structure. The 8th is always transcendence. The 8th is always the number of miracle. That's why is 8 days. Bruce is on the 8th day because it gives the body the ability to transcend. The 8th is always the word shmone in Hebrew which spells 8 is the same letters as Neshama which means the transcendent soul. Right? Because those two, and of course you rearrange the letters again, obviously spells Mishnah, the Mishnah, which is that part of Torah that connects the higher and lower. So, seven is always natural, eight is always transcendent. Seventy-five is the way of saying that's what the priest kohen is. The Koyen stands between this world and the next. He stands... When he enters the you Kodesh know, Kodeshim, the holiest place on earth, which is beyond time, what is the, qualifi- what is the quality of the Kurdish Kodeshim? Objects there occupy no space. You know, the Orin, the Ark that occupied it, had dimensions that took no space in the... It was too big to fit. It fitted without occupying space. It did not shrink and the room did not expand, because if either would have happened, they would have been invalid, because their measurements are specified. Something large was put into a place that was occupied no space at all, because that is the root of space. In that place, that name can be said, But not in any lower, of the concentric circles of lower Kedusha. And therefore, we have here <coughs> the principle <coughs> that this name is the root. Let, let's try and work through some of the expressions of this. Example 1 When Hashem said to Moshe that that name I did not reveal before, but I'm revealing it now one of the applications is that Nisim, miracles that took place before took place in a different way. There's a a categorical distinction here. Miracles, Nisim, that took place in history before that date have a different quality than miracles that take place afterwards, at least during Tanakh times. The miracles that took place before... Again, this is very rarefied. I mean, hard for us to relate to any of this, but our sources indicate as follows. The miracles that took place before were miracles that set aside nature, but did not contradict nature. Miracles that took place afterwards were miracles where nature existed and did not exist at the same time. stay, Stay with me carefully. The type of miracle that occurred before was, for example, when somebody was in a fire and had to be saved... Right? Let's say Avram Avinu was thrown into a furnace. Nimrod threw him into a fire, says the Medrash. How was he saved? So the sources indicate because the fire around him was cooled. That's a miracle. That's a nice. He was in a fire, didn't burn him. Why? Because the fire was cooled around him. That's a lower order nace. There's a higher order nace, which is a person thrown into a fire where the fire is hot and does burn and he still doesn't burn. That's a contr- Again, there's no logical contradiction Between being in a fire and not burning, if the fire is cooled, it's a miraculous thing to happen. We may be hard put to find a natural explanation. We may not find a natural explanation. But the reason he's not burning is because the fire is kept away from burning him. Later, when Hananiah, Mishal, and Azariah are thrown into a furnace, there the fire is not kept away from them. There they're in the fire and it burns and it is fire and they are inflammable and they don't get burnt. You understand? There's a contradiction, right? Before, you're not talking contradictions. You're talking about miraculous intervention. Not a contradiction in terms. Afterwards, you're talking about a contradiction. The fact that the orange occupies a certain space, it's a physical object, and you put it into a room with certain dimensions, and when you measure the room from edge to edge of the object, nothing's changed, that's a contradiction in terms. Are you with me? If it miraculously shrank, or the room miraculously expanded, that would be a first-order miracle. But if neither of those happens, it keeps its dimensions, the room keeps its dimensions, you put it in and it occupies no space... That's a logical contradiction. That's the kind of world that began after the Exodus. You have to understand, Jews live in a world of complete contradiction in terms. That's who we are. We're not people who are able to manipulate the natural world in such a way that we live beyond the natural world. But let's try and understand some of this. Again, it's fundamental at least we who live below all sorts of miracles, virtually all sorts, we need to have at least in our head this clarity. At least the Torah of this issue we need. In last week's partial we read about the splitting of the sea. The Jews arrived at the sea, being pursued. The ocean split, they walked through the sea. Listen carefully to the words. It says, chayom They walked in the midst of the ocean on dry land. Listen carefully to the words. They walked in the midst of the ocean on dry land. And subsequently it says, another time it says, they walked on dry land in the midst of the ocean. Twice it's... What does it mean to walk in the midst of the ocean on dry land? So the usual interpretation was completely wrong is that the sea split and they walked on dry land where there had once been sea. But it doesn't say that. It says they walked on dry land in the ocean. You begin to hear the contradiction? And our sources indicate that's exactly what happened. What did it look like, this experience? What did it look like? You have no idea. You have no idea. They walked through an ocean that was an ocean. And yet for them it was dry land. Don't misunderstand me. The sea split. We we know the sea split because the Torah says so. With all the details, twelve channels that they walked through with fruits in the walls that they plucked out, that the birds shared with them, all the Midrash, walking between the walls of water. And yet, at the same time, it was the midst of the ocean. A sea splitting so you can walk through is a first order miracle. A sea splitting so you can walk through while yet remains ocean that hasn't split, that's the paradox of the Jewish people's becoming. You know the what's the reason for this? What's the meaning here? Try and follow through. Amazing, amazing thing. The meaning is that you know why were the Jews delivered? Why did we become what? You know we are called Ivri. Ivri means Avru who trust The word Ivri in, in English they translate it as a Hebrew. You're a Hebrew. Right? Ivri means you crossed. You crossed from one side to the other. There's many meanings in this. But the simple meaning is cross the sea. Cross from one side of the ocean to another. Why call us by that name? Is that of essence? Again, we always name things in Torah for essence. What is of essence in our being that we crossed the ocean? That's how we survived. Miraculous. You could have been helicoptered across, you could have been tunneled under, you could have been armored car, escorted, you could have been... We went from one side of the sea to the other. It happened to be. Why is that essential to our name? Why are we named for that? And the reason is because having transitioned through a sea lived in a dual reality. We become people who live in two realities. The source of this, of course, is by Yitzchak. You know that Isaac, it's gone back. Who is the first Jewish child? Yitzchak. Avram Abinu formed himself. <coughs> right? Became this teacher of monotheism and brought this thing to the world. And his child, Yitzchak, Isaac, Yitzchak was sacrificed. But again, listen to the same story. Again, when you start to see this in Torah, you see it everywhere. He sacrificed. His father puts him on the Mizbech takes a knife and at the last moment before he checks him a voice says stop, don't touch him and he stops he stays his hand Yitzchak gets off the Mizbech and he walks away incidentally the next event in his life is that he gets married so the beginning of the, of the propagation of Jewish people the point of origin listen well to this the point of origin of the Jewish people is the moment where a human being is about to be sacrificed and instead of being sacrificed and dying he survives and that's when he begins his family what happens is on the Mizbech, on the altar, is left a pile of his ash. His ash, having been burnt as a complete sacrifice. The Medra says, Ephro Shel Yitzchak Munach Lefanai. The ashes of Isaac are gathered before me, Hashem says. One second. He, he wasn't killed, right? Can you hear what's happening? Again. He's put on the altar. His father stretches his neck. He takes a sharp knife. And at the last moment, he stays his hand. The young man survives. And what's left in his place? (coughs) A pile of ash. Not the ash of the ram. Eproshel Yitzchak. The ashes of Isaac. That means he becomes a person who inhabits a dual reality. He becomes a human being who is at one and the same time miraculously survives, and yet has gone... Ari, the great Kabbalistic master, points out that the word Yitzchak spells Ketz Chai. Death in life. Ketz means the final messianic Redemption meaning the next world, Kate's the end, Chai, while alive. And that's what Jews are. From that moment on, we become people who are able to, we live, we begin with impossible ends. He becomes a human being who survives and lives, and yet he inhabits the higher world at the same time. That's where it begins. The Jewish people, not as an individual, but as a nation, cross an ocean. Why is it crossing an ocean? you know that the world began with dry land being revealed from from, uh, from waters how did the creation begin? Yeah, how did the creation begin? there was a world covered in water the waters split, revealing dry land and then human life took hold what's the meaning of a sea an ocean splitting later? like it says <laughs> Hashem prepared a dry land for His people what dry land? in the midst of the sea <coughs> what does this mean? Let's just try. It. First of all, let me establish for you the connection between them. What's the connection between creation, waters giving rise, yeah, separating for dry land, and sea splitting for creation of Jews? Incidentally, this is the meaning of mikveh. When a person goes into the mikveh, the meaning is water. Water is always. Water always means dissolution of form. Water means <coughs> drowning. Means to become part of the medium. Water always means when no distinct form is. The Hebrew word ma'im is always plural. The Hebrew word for water is always, you know that? The Hebrew word for water is always plural. It's always multiplicity, without distinction. (coughs) You know, the word mime in Hebrew is based on a word that means what? What is a question you ask when you don't know what it is? You say, what is it? The The Torah wants to refer to that which cannot be specified. It refers to it by question. Again, when we want to talk about Hashem's greatness, do we say how great He is? No, we say, how great is He? We say, Mi Hashem, Who is like you, Hashem? We don't mean who is like you, nobody's like him. But since we can't say anything definitive about him because it would be a limitation, we ask a question. We say, Ma rabu Hashem, How many are your works? You see, the English here, here's a sort of Shakespearean rhetorical, poetical, you know, how goodly and how numerous and how many and how. But that's not, what you mean is, I can't say how many, so I say, How many are there? A the question always begs more. On Shabbos we don't say Ma Rabbu, we say Ma Gadlu Ma Sechashem How great are your works? We are asking the question Ma or sometimes Me meaning incidentally the word Ma in Hebrew adds up to 45 that's the same numerical value as the word Ma'od which means very very always means whatever you have it's more that's what very means and of course if you take the word Ma'od and rearrange the letters you get Adam because a human, Adam, Adam the human being is that which is more than what he appears to be. If not, you're not human. As the moral points out, the forty five that is essence of a human means that he's very. An animal is Baha Ma. Ba ma Ba ma, it's forty-five, it's what it is, is in it. And nothing more. A human's whatness is more than what you see. No. So we say what? Water is a derivative of the word for what? Incidentally, in many languages, the word for water is based on the word for what in that language? Vas and vaser. In many languages, you'll find, even Latin, you have qua, meaning what, and aqua. Very interesting. Many languages choose to express water as a facet of the question that begs more. There are sparks in every language of Hebrew. Every language, derivative, right? One of the 70 roots that split from the original language in the world. And you can sometimes detect the sparks. Or the drops, if you like. The, the meaning is this. Mikveh is a body of water. When you enter the waters of the mikveh, it's a dissolution of form. Many people make an error. They think that when you enter the waters of the mikveh, is cleansing and purity. The truth is that entering the waters of the mikvah is not a cleansing a new existence. It is a dissolution of a previous existence. A, a Halakhic sources say that the intention for purity should be not when you go under the water, but when you emerge. Because going under the water is a dissolution of a previous form. It's emerging from the water that is your new creation. The focus of purity of Kedusha should be as you come out of the water. Just like the world manifests from out of the primal waters of creation. Let me show you a beautiful link between the original waters of creation and the dry land, and the ocean and its splitting. Beautiful illustration. Once, the Gorn of Vilna, you know, the, 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 most, the best known student of the Gorn of Vilna was Yub Chaim And on one privileged occasion when he went in to see his Rebbe, which wasn't often, eh, the he didn't see the gon that often, the Gorn of Vilna was the, the, the absolute uh, pinnacle of the, the Torah giant of many generations when Reb Chaim went in to see him, he on one occasion took his son. His son, Itzala, he was a child, he was six or seven at the time. I actually heard this story from a descendant of the family. But it's a well-known story. He took his son, Itzala, in for the privilege of seeing the great man. And of course, like any good student, he had prepared his questions. Reb Chaim had questions that he was going to ask the God And no doubt he asked what his questions were. One of his questions was as follows. Now listen carefully to what happened. One of his questions was the following question. He said to the gon, you know, we have an axiom that when the sea split, it's learned from the splitting of the sea. It says that <coughs> in close to morning, it says, <coughs> the, the, the ocean returned to its strength. Meaning, the ocean had been split for the Jews to cross, the wall stood vertical, and then the oceans returned to its horizontal, Not interesting that in order to do that, Moshe Ben had to put out his hand. And Rav Gifty used to ask, why did it take an action to return to the natural state? To perform a miracle takes an action. But surely as soon as the miracle is no longer needed, it should return to its natural state. Miracles only exist minimally in the world. But of course the message is to teach you that the natural state is as <coughs> miraculous as the miraculous. Just like one needs a special creation, so does the other. Right? Important message. But when the sea had split and the Jews had passed through, it says, وَخَزَهَا the this ocean returned to its strength. The word etano in Hebrew has a similarity to the word litna'o, litnao. To its condition. So the sages say, rishon, to its original condition. Not condition like in English. A situation. Condition meaning a... something conditional. Dependent. What does it mean? Not state. A condition meaning a tna'i, having made a condition because the sages say yeah, we have principle that no miracle occurs in the world unless it was made conditional in the creation of that thing at the moment of creation that it would later be miraculous again, again, again all things that became miracles in the world we have a principle that when they were created originally there was a divine condition made when the ocean was created Hashem said to it you, ocean you live horizontal on condition that once in history I'll ask you to stand vertical that, was, that condition was built into their existence Again, there's a deep message. The message is that even the miraculous is built into the natural mechanism. It's not a Kiddush that happens later. <coughs> no? So there was a condition when the ocean was created that one day it would split. So far, so good? Shubhaim asked the God where in the Torah do you see that condition? Everything must be in Torah. If Hashem created the oceans and made a condition, then if again, Torah is the source of creation. There must be written in the text of the Chumash somewhere, a clue that he made a condition with the ocean originally. As the God of Yildan was about to answer him, the child tugged at his Abba's sleeve and he said, Abba, Abba, why do you ask the tzaddik? You could ask me. <laughs> <laughs> As you can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> but the Gon said, No, no, let him speak, let him speak. So he picked him up on a chair. And Ahmed said the following answer. Listen to this child's answer. He said, There is a condition written in the Torah. And it's written in the verse that talks about the creation of the dry land. What does it say? It says, That's what the verse says. Let all the waters in the world be gathered into one place. The word mikvah, a gathering of water. Let the dry land be revealed. That's what the verse says. Said the child, If all the, dry, if all the waters are gathered, of course the dry land is revealed. Why does the Torah have to say, And let the dry land be revealed? It's unnecessary answer is, that let the dry land be revealed. He's referring to a subsequent event in history where dry land will be revealed for the Jewish people going through the sea. They go and kissed him on his head, and he said, that's correct. It's not bad for six years old. (laughs) (laughs) So we see that there's unnecessary words in the Torah, back in the creation of land, indicating that the world, the waters are separated, and that the dry land is revealed, meaning not now, but again. What's the connection? But again, a moment's thought will show you the connection is this. The world's history begins with the formlessness of waters splitting, as it were, to reveal land for human existence. Right? That's the place of human existence. The ocean is not a place of human existence. Waters always mean, waters always mean a place of no existence. That means a place of no pathway. You know, the ocean has no landmarks, except the shore you leave and the shore you sail to. Water always means dissolution. You know are you cry Water. Why do you cry tears of water? Samaral so, explains because crying is always the human response to a lack of pathway where there's a where a, where derech comes to an end where there's no you, there's no or no revelation of a path. The human response is tears. The word bechi in Hebrew, crying, means no clear path. in Hebrew means a maze where there's no clear path. Navoch. The voice which expresses. Process becomes incoherent. All you have is sound, but not words. <coughs> That's why a desert is called midbar, where there's no speech. Bar, they got lost in a maze in the desert. And the eyes give water, because even vision becomes incoherent. There's no. The word. Yeah, the Hebrew word for tears is dim'ah. The root of that word means a confused mixture. Demai means where two substances are mixed in an in, in a indistinguishable fashion. That's what happens in this crime. The ocean is always the place of pure multiplicity, where there's no distinction and no uniqueness, where there's no form possible. And the ocean splits to reveal land, which is where human existence and human individuality and creation begins. But there's another kind of human creation, and that's the creation of the Jewish people. And so once again we go back to creation, we go back to a, to a body of water that splits, dry land is revealed, and that's where the Jews come into their existence. Right? It's a second version of creation where we come into being. And what's the nature of our being? It's a split that's not a split. It's in the water, which is impossible, and it's dry land at the same time. And that's why we become a people who are both offer, offered as a sacrifice on an altar, and yet that's where we begin our lives, not where we end. And we become that impossible people. Let's work through it. Can we work through a couple of other uh, applications? Is this one too heavy? Too heavy? Let's try to work through one or two applications of this idea and see how far it goes. Perhaps the most famous is the paradox of what we call Yadir and Bukhira divine foreknowledge and human free will. Those are nothing other than an expression of this paradox. The source of this. Let's try and understand this. The source of this is a Mishnah. The Mishnah says, safui, everything is foreseen, right? and free will is given. And the simple translation of the verse is, safui, everything is seen, permission is given, freedom is given, and the final clause is, nidoin, and the world is judged with kindness, with goodness. What does this mean? But very briefly, without laboring the details, the, the concept is like this. Hakol Safui means everything is foreseen, there's divine foreknowledge. And if there's divine foreknowledge, there can be no free will. Again, we can't go into the subject in detail, just to refer to it. You know, uh, you must be aware, right, that one of the most fundamental philosophical questions, and religious questions, is how Hashem can know beforehand what will be, and yet we believe that we have free will. Because if He knows what's going to be, there can't be any free will, because He can't be wrong in His knowledge. So if He knows that you're going to go right and not left, what real choice do you have to go left? If He already knew beforehand, you are familiar with this problem, right? No. Yes. <coughs> so there are ways to handle this. The raver takes one line. And, uh, there, there, there are ways to deal with this. You could say, for example, that Hashem doesn't interfere with your free will. It's just clever enough to know. If I can predict what's going to be, if I know you well enough to know what you're going to be, it doesn't mean I caused it. I used to live in an apartment. I mean, a classic. I used to live in an apartment where. From my, from my balcony, I could see an accident before it happened. I could see it was clear. I could see that judging by the speed of this vehicle coming down this road, and the movement of this one into his path, knowing that he couldn't see down that road until it would be... I could see it clearly. I didn't cause them. <laughs> I was never wrong, because there was a point of no return when it was inevitable, a number of seconds before it happened. I, I assure you it had nothing to do with the causation. And, so he says you could know something by having superior vision, but not be a cause. That's not the Rambam's opinion, which is the definitive opinion. Rambam's opinion is that Hashem's foreknowledge is not clever foreknowledge; it is reality. He's beyond time. His knowledge is existence. And if something exists in his knowledge, it is that way—was, is, and will be. And that is an absolute contradiction to any other option. I mean, you must be able to see that. A Jewish belief is: How do we resolve this issue? In Jewish philosophy, our approach is, we believe both, even though they're contradictory. If you ask, what is the definitive Jewish doctrine on the question of predestination and free will, our answer is, we know that He knows beforehand what's going to be, which completely eliminates any possibility of free will, and He gives you free will at the same time. Can those live together? No. Do they? Yes. Is that possible? No, but it's irrelevant. That is, that is what we hold. That, that's, you yeah, just to hear it a bit more clearly, what is the third part of that Mishnah? Ubatuv Nidoin. And the world is judged with goodness. <coughs> Do you know what this means? The matter says that when the world was created, Allah Ba it came up in Hashem's mind to create the world with din. Din means strict justice. Exact measure for men, exact measure. Is He saw that a world could not live like that. Because any human being, imagine putting a world, a human being, into a world of exactitude. As soon as you put one step wrong, you disappear instantaneously. In fact, the Kabbalistic tradition has it, and tomorrow talks about it. There were, in fact, 974 generations of souls created before the world. They were created in Din. When it says Allah bar it means He created them. As they came into existence, they forfeited their existence and died. That sinned as they were created, almost inevitably, which is the situation of a human soul, of a soul in a world of absolute Din. And then he created a world in which we exist, where the din is admixed with rachamin. It says the imoy He put together with the din rachamin, and we exist in a world where there's an underlying din, but there's a kindness, an extension, a credit, second chances. The problem is you can't mix those two things. You can't do that. It doesn't say he negated din and instead <coughs> created rachamin. It says shiteth imoy. That means he made a partnership. If you can't do that. If you have justice, exactitude, you can't make allowances. It's not justice anymore. <laughs> One or the other. Again, are you with me? Din means 100.0000. Rachmin means, you make it 99.9999. But again, if it's 99.99, it's not 100.0. You can't do that. You can't mix Din and rakem. No matter how much or how little. Do you understand? Din means It's exact. You can't have something that's exact and also not exact. But he did. He made a world exactly like that. Exactly like that. The concept is that the world is being run by din even though you don't see it. That's our teaching. That's is it paradoxical? Absolutely. You see, people think that the world is run like a supermarket. Supermarket means you get a time, you pick this off the shelf, you enjoy it, you pick that off. One day you check out. One day you check out and then the din is manifest. Then you get an account. Our teaching is not like that. Our teaching is that as it comes off the shelf It's paid. You may not perceive that. You live in a world where you don't perceive the paradox. But the depth of Emunah is that it's always balanced. Only the Gilu, the revelation to our finite minds, is not here. But there's no phase during which it's not balanced. And that's why it means... The Mephoshim say that this Mishnah is said by Rabbi Akiva, even though it doesn't have his name there. He says the proceeding. And the reason he says the Rambam... Basically, it must be he. Because Rebbe Akiva was the one who lived a life of absolute and he was killed in the most awful fashion. The most, in fact, the Midrashim said that when he was being killed by the Romans in the most bizarre, agonizing fashion, the angels appealed to Hashem and they said, Zuh Torah, this is the this is Torah, this is his reward. This is a man, the greatest man, who, you know, the whole oral law goes according to Rebbe Kiba. This is Torah, this is his reward. What's the answer to that? What is the divine answer? What does Hashem answer His angels? Shtoik. He says, "Keep silent." This is what I understand to be. And if you ask me another question, I'll return the world to void, back to water, back to the pre-creation state. What does it mean? This cannot be understood in the world. He lives on a level of din, and he manifests din. You can't understand how din and Rachamim can exist uh, exist together. Hmm. And therefore, all of this, of course, comes out of the name, (coughs) the name of Hashem which is the name of oneness, Hashem Elokein, Hashem. What do you mean when you say Shema Israel, Hashem Elokein, Hashem Echad? What do you mean? Let's talk practically. Every morning, every evening, you say Shema, right? The Jew hopes to die with those words on his lips. What does it mean you mean Hashem is one? Do you mean He's one and not two or three or four? We credit an intelligent ten-year-old with knowing that He's absolute and divine. He can't be two or three or four. What do we mean when we say Hashem is one? We don't mean that He's one and not two. We mean He's one and there's nothing else. Not even you. That's what you mean. The meditation of Hashem Echad. When you say Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. When you say that word, what you mean is that He's one to the extent that there is nothing else. Not even me. That's an incredible meditation. In fact, our sources say you shouldn't say the word Echad too long. You may forget to come down. got to return to a world of, of this kind of reality. But Hashem Echad means the word Shema means to make one. Shema means to make one. Saul gathered the people together. Shema means Jewish people make oneness. Take a world that looks broken down and manifest as, as split issues and, 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 and objects. And make that into one, right? You know in Shema, the ayin is written great, big and the Dalat is written big. The two together spell eight. Be a, be a witness. <coughs> be a witness. You, you're a Jew. You know what the concept of a witness? He brings evidence when the thing cannot be seen. You don't need a witness when you see the thing. A witness comes to testify of that which you cannot see. That's our role. Our role in the world is to testify that there's only one and there's nothing else, even though it cannot be seen. Of course, the word aid, if you reverse the letter, spells da. That means you know this. Da means knowledge. Know it. That is the paradox of Shema. You know, when the Ten Commandments were said, the Ten Commandments were said, do you know that all ten were said in one? All ten were said in one. And then they were repeated. Hashem said the first one, the Jews heard it, they died. They died, the Gemara says. Then the Shamas flew out to Hashem when they heard him speak. The kisses of his mouth, as it's called. They were absorbed into him. The souls, the bodies were blasted back 12 miles. Then they were resuscitated, revived. He spoke again, they died again, exploded apart. When he began to speak the third time, the Jews said to Moshe, It's enough, you, you hear the rest, you tell us. Not easy, not easy. And we heard the, re- the, the other eight repeated by him. But before all that happened, all ten were said in one. Why would Hashem speak his ten commandments to us all in one? A human being can't hear ten things said at once. Trade, coiling, two voices cannot be heard. If I say to you two things at once, you hear a noise. You can see things at once. Because vision is a higher mode. That's the mode of prophecy. You can see elements in a scene, you see them at once. That's why the Hebrew word re'iyah means seeing, is the same as raaya, meaning a proof. It's clear. <coughs> but Shmi'ah, hearing, is not clear. Hearing, you can't hear two things at once. You can only hear one thing at a time, and you construct the elements. So why would he say ten things at once? Do you hear the problem? <coughs> but the issue is again, the ten commandments are all the oneness of Anochi Hashem All ten are bonded and contained in the first one, which is Hashem's existence. All of the first one is contained in the word Anochi, which means I. And all of that is contained in the first Aleph, which is the symbolism, the symbol of Hashem's oneness in the world? Aleph, as you know, is made of ten. Yes, a yud, which is the ten higher elements coming down into the world. The opposed, inverted ten, another yud, as they're reflected in the world, joined by the letter of conjunction, the vav, right, which means conjunction. Ten, ten, and six, twenty-six. Hashem's name in the aleph is the is the divine name, and therefore the ten commandments are said as one. They said as one because, of course, all is one them. And yet, in the one are ten. That is the mystery of the world that we inhabit. And of course, we could go on for hours Don't worry, I'm not I'm not uh, But we could go on for a long time talking about all the manifestations of paradox in the world where we we Jews inhabit the world of paradox. It is not that you know we are comfortable we have to learn to be comfortable with this concept of paradox. Our, our, Our existence. We live in a world where these things coexist. When you say Hashem's name, you mean all things exist, and yet they won. Predestination and free will, we understand, are this incredible paradoxical opposite. And in all the sources that systematize the world, right, for example, we have a notion of the right and the left and the center that joins them, harmonizes them, a very basic idea, the right hand, called Chesed, which means absolute giving, the left hand, called Gvura, which means the absolute withholding, how do those coexist in a the world? There's a third thing that puts them together. The third thing that puts two opposites together is not a third thing. That Let's maybe finish with this idea, because it's a fundamental insight. Maybe we'll, we'll stop with this. In our system of right, left, and center, right? or if you like, thesis, antithesis, and then somehow a synthesis of the two, we are always understanding that the thing that brings them together is not demonstrating that only one of them is correct and the other was a mistake. Our concept is that the third thing that brings them together shows that both were right even though they were opposite. Example. Example. The Gemara says that the Torah was given in threes. The Torah is always three. The third person, the third month, the people consisting of three, your groups, etc., etc., We always read the Torah, incidentally, with three people present, standing at the Sefer Torah. What is three in Torah? Three is always the number of truth. Truth doesn't mean one thing that's a fact. That's not truth, that's just a fact. Truth means two things that are mutually exclusive, and then you see how they're both actually true and don't contradict each other. That's truth. Again, it's a fundamental thing. A Jew, We have to lift ourselves to the level to realize truth doesn't mean a fact. That's just a fact. Shalom, peace. Peace doesn't mean lack of conflict. Shalom means that objects that are in conflict are harmonized. (coughs) That's what peace means. Again, Peace, marriage. Marriage doesn't mean two people are the same. Marriage means two people who are absolute, complete opposites, who blend and harmonize into a third thing that emphasizes the difference and yet makes them one. That's what marriage is supposed to be. Marriage is supposed to be a nuclear reaction of two people, each one melting completely and utterly into the other giving himself or herself away with complete fearlessness and vulnerability, and paradoxically discovering that when they two of them melt into this third thing which far transcends either of them, instead of having disappeared, you suddenly discover who you are. very, Very difficult to put in words. And what do you do with that newfound sense of who you are, independence, uniqueness? Put it right back in. That's supposed to be this fusion reaction of two people becoming one, in no way contradicting their essential what is the Jewish people supposed to be? A harmony of elements, each one totally committed and blended into the, each other, in such a way that when the Torah is given, the, the Torah switches into the singular. The Jews move through the desert, speaks about us in plural. Then they stand at Mount at the at Sinai, and it says yeah, it says the verb that the Torah uses there for the Jews standing at Sinai is singular. It says Rashi like one person with one heart. That's what we're supposed to be. You think becoming one means that I forget who I am as an individual. On the contrary, I discover who I am. And I express my uniqueness. That's what I'm here for. I'm not here to be the same as you. Again, out there, they think that being religious means being a cloned robotic, yeah, all of us, automatic robotic clones, same ritual, same. I think you could advance a pretty good argument that out there there's a lot of sameness, personally. 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 In here, we couldn't be more different. As a Jew, you're not supposed to be the same as the next person. The whole reason you're here is to express what you are. That's why you're here. The Midrashim said that when the Torah was given, each Jew was told where to stand. Mosheven looked into his eyes and said, you stand here. Not there, here. Because the Torah comes down, there's a and Torah a portion in Torah for each Jewish Neshama. And if you weren't standing where you were, you'd be standing here, you'd get nothing, and your portion would fall on the desert sand, and the whole Torah would be incomplete. You have to stand in your place, lose all your degrees of freedom, to achieve the ultimate freedom, which is your connection to reality. Yours, not his. Oh, yes. We don't teach sameness. Our concept is that you have to be completely expressed as an individual. Absolutely, flamingly individualistic. You're here to bring your role to the world. The first exercise in Jewish education is to discover what's unique about you. But then you fit into a a mode where we all become one. That's what a love is, a deep friendship, a marriage. It's a construction of something that is the harmonized elements. That's what the truth is. The truth is two opposing statements that turn out both to be true. If I say to you, the library is open on Wednesday. Any problem? No. Then I say to you, the library is closed on Wednesday. Problem. The third statement is, the library is open in the mornings and closed in the afternoons. Oh, The third statement shows you that the previous two are fitting into harmony where all three elements are All Jewish life is that way. What's education of a child? What's our process of education of a child? Let your left hand always push away and let your right hand draw near. How do you do? What are you supposed to be doing to this child? Pushing him away or drawing him near? Or a Rebbe with a Talmud, right? A Master with a Disciple. Says small that your left hand push Yemin and draw near with your right. What are you supposed to be doing here? You're supposed to split him? The concept is that of course all of this is for the kindness of drawing close with the right. The discipline of the left is only there for the kindness of the right. When you say no and deny a child isn't it only because of the giving? When you stop giving isn't it only because that's a giving to? The deep sources say that when the rain falls it's called chesed, it's the right hand, it's giving. But if the rain doesn't stop, it's called a flood. The fact that the rain stops, objectively that's a lack, it's a taking away, it's a, that's the biggest blessing. That the rain stops at the right time. If it's too little, there's not enough giving. If it goes on too much, it's a flood. The moment the rain stops, paradoxically, is where you see the kindness and the perfection of its giving. When you say yes to a child, then you give and you give and you give. That's wonderful, but you don't stop at the right moment, it's a flood of destruction. So what happens? It turns out that both right and left are giving. The giving to the child is an act of love, and the saying no is an act of love. It makes the giving a genuine gift. You know what it means? A Wasserman used to say like this, if you have two left hands, you push the child away. If you have two right hands, you pull the child close. If the left pushes and the right pulls, you turn him right around. That's what you're trying to do. Education is a molding, and it's the harmony of the love and the discipline. It's always like that. They're not in any contrad- contradictions. Each one becomes true in the light of the other. Of course, that's what marriage is supposed to be. Except in marriage, you're supposed to do the kindliness on the other and the discipline on yourself. Most people think marriage is between the discipline on the other and the kindness on yourself. That's not the idea. The idea of marriage is to do only chesed on the other and discipline on the own. Right? You have to get the mode right. But that is the, that's the concept. Three is always the number of resolution of these opposites. It doesn't mean that the two are opposed. It means that although there are complete and extreme opposites, the harmonizing between the two is the construction of a third thing, which is the reality. The world is not one thing. When we say, Milvada, we don't mean that Hashem is and that's all there is and we aren't here. We don't mean that. We are here. You better believe it. We are here, and so are all the details and all the problems in the world. And yet, underlying all of that is Einod Milvada, that you say, Shemayin Su'ala, Shemal you can say at that, at that moment, you take a broken, fractured, differentiated, broken down world, and you say, Einod Milvada, nothing besides Him. And perhaps that is the beginning of, not, not that we do it for this reason, of course, but perhaps that's the beginning of a process that could take us to being able to love in a world that is in case you hadn't noticed, a world of, of chaos and, and absolute, completely unmitigated brutality and beyond all description, beyond all belief, beyond all sanity, beyond any semblance of sanity. How do you function as a Jew in a world like that? How do you maintain any, how do you maintain any sense of, of balance, of normality? How do you maintain any sense of joy? What does it mean, you're supposed to be in happiness? How on earth do you generate a moment's serenity, peace in a world of chaos. It's because you get used to living a paradox if you're a Jew. Both of them, re- in reality, not denial, not denial. You only do it by the third element, which is the transcendent one, which is emunah. You have to know that what's happening here is a precursor and a construction. The more it breaks down, the more oneness will be manifest. It doesn't mean it's pleasant now. You have to feel the pain and laugh at the same time. Not laughfully, It's not appropriate. Then, our love, then we'll fill our mouth with laughter. Now it's not appropriate. You have to be insensitive to laugh fully now. But you have to have an inner joy. You have to walk with an inner joy and an inner peace, even though the world complete opposite of that. Does it require being paradoxical. Absolutely. But that's not new to us. That's not new to us. And therefore that's the message. We have to express our sense, yeah, our beginning, of a human being who was offered as a sacrifice, at one and the same moment, became shechted, became sacrificed, moved into a higher world, and at the same moment, walked off to found his own family and to function in the world. We live in the next world, why we live in this world? That's why we're impossible people. Our survival is impossible. Our survival is impossible. People make a tragic error. They think that Jewish education and outreach and modifying Judaism, it's all needed in order to ensure our survival. Why do we reach out to Jews with no background, no education? We need it desperately for Jewish survival. Complete error. Our survival is not in question. We've been around this long, with a concerted effort of the great nations of the world, for the last 3,300 years, doing very little other than trying to eradicate us. Vast amounts of the energies of the world, their brains, their technology, their has gone to nothing other, right? They're prepared to move worlds and <coughs> to kill us. Just because we're Jews, that's all. Not because we're bad in any way. Just Jews. Do you know that they never tried that with cockroaches? <laughs> Do you know that there's never been in the history of humankind an attempt to wipe out a species just because it's a species? Cockroaches. Let's get rid of them all in general. Why? The cockroached. That's not. But Jews? Yeah, what Jews. That's what they've tried. Are we still here? That's because we live in both those worlds. We, we are reincinerated at the same time as living here. Aqua survival is not a question. The reason we reach out to Jews with no background because we are worried about them. Not about survival. It's not about... We're, we're the, the tree will be there when the leaves fall off. The leaves are falling off in the winter. but The tree will s- sprout again next spring. We are not worried about the tree. We are worried about the leaves. That's the problem. It's not the survival of the, of the trunk of the tree. That's going to survive. The problem is the leaves falling off. That's tragic. And therefore, that's where we begin. And where we come into being as a people is where we stand now. We stand now in the split ocean, walk through those walls of water, not in last week's pasha, towards Sinai this week. Last week, we walked through an ocean that was dry land and an ocean at the same time. Next week, we hear the Ten Commandments that are each ten separate jewels and yet one diamond with facets at the same time. <coughs> I leave you with an image. Can I do that? I have a friend in Israel. Where I used to live. He's a wonderful painter. Wonderful painter. You should see his paintings. Amazing, amazing paintings. Amazing painting. But one painting I'll never forget. I walked into his house and I saw as a large oil. <coughs> the painting is as follows. This is Jewish art. It's a vision of the world from above. And it's a vision of an ocean. And below you is a chasm of split ocean. As far as the eye can see is ocean surface. And directly beneath you, the walls of water have split. And your eye follows down, down, down into these cavern, into a deep, deep cavern, into the dry land at the bottom of the ocean, far below you. And running past your eyes is an electric cord. Down, 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 down into the depths. And the end of that electric cord is a light bulb. And it's lit above a tiny picture of a Jewish family making a Seder. A little table in the bottom of the sea. And there's a family sitting there with the matzahs and the wine, celebrating it's Mitzrayim and the splitting of the sea. That's what they're doing. That's where we are. Whatever we're doing, doing our mitzvah. But we're living it. We're living in the walls of water. That's where they are. That's how we have to picture ourselves. We have to be in this world and out of it at the same time. We have to be one, unique and individual, and yet the same as the one we married to or the each of us, friends, you know, identified as one. It's a coming to be comfortable with paradox. That's where...